If you have your Bibles this morning, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Nahum, chapter number two. Nahum, chapter number two. When preaching through a book like Nahum, I have to remind myself periodically that man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from the mouth of God. So that even an obscure passage and an obscure prophet like Nahum too can be good for the nourishment of the souls of God's people, conviction of sin, call to salvation, God's sanctifying work in our life. I was sharing with some of our pastors after the first service that Nahum's hard to preach through. There are just so many ways the preacher can say, if you don't do right, God will get you. You have to get fairly creative to say it in really any other way. I was in a conversation after the second service with uh, some members of our church, and we were talking about Nahum, and I made a similar observation, Nahum's hard to preach through, to which he responded, Nahum's hard to listen to. So we'll see if we can't do a little something with Nahum chapter 2 this morning, right? It was in jest and well-intended and those sorts of things, right? Nahum 2 is a somewhat graphic and frightening depiction of the judgment that God would bring against the city of Nineveh and the empire of Assyria. It serves as a word of warning to anyone who in their arrogance believe themselves to be exempt from the judgment of God. If you have in your pride believed that you would somehow, some way, sidestep the judgment of God against sin, Nahum chapter 2 stands as a lesson that there are no exemptions and there are no exceptions and there is no power that can withstand the judgment of our God against sin. It's graphic and terrifying in its depiction. In fact, there's some literary devices utilized in Nahum chapter 2 that run parallel to the horror movies that perhaps you watched as a young person coming up. It's frightening. God is moving in on the city of Nineveh in a great act of judgment. And as he moves in geographically from the outside to the inside, judgment and annihilation are being accomplished along the way. There are times when I think about people in the world who have no access to the gospel. Millions of people in the world have no access to the gospel. This is an unacceptable reality. In a world of social media and marketing and branding, in a world where Coca-Cola has found its way onto the shelves of grocery stores in every civilized nation, it is an unacceptable reality that there remain to be corners of the world where the name of Jesus is not known. But at the same time, there are millions upon millions, especially in our cultural context, who know of the name of Jesus with access to the Bible, unbridled access to the message of the gospel, some degree of understanding of the righteousness of our God and all that his righteousness intends for us, and yet persist in defying his will for their life. Nahum, too, is a word of judgment against those 
who with some degree of knowledge of the righteousness of God, some awareness of his personhood as the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, have persisted in their defiance of his will for their life. This is a picture of judgment against those who have actively defied the God of heaven and terrorized his people. Payday has come for the city of Nineveh. Nahum chapter 2. If you have your Bibles there and are able, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's word. Nahum chapter 2 verse 1. This is what the word of our Lord says. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. The chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. He gives orders to his officers. They stumble as they advance. They face, they race rather to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. The river gates are opened and the palace erodes away. Beauty is stripped. She has carried away her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breast. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first days, but they're fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Desolation, decimation, devastation, hearts melt, knees tremble, loins shake, every face grows pale. Where is the lion's lair, the feeding ground of the young lions, where the lion and lion is proud and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away? The lion mauled whatever its cub needed and strangled prey for its lionesses. It filled up its den with kill and its lair with mauled prey. Beware, I am against you. This is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will make your chariots go up in smoke. The sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth. And the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. To a certain extent, Nahum too is about who's in charge. Assyria had believed themselves to be insulated against any enemy attack. They had assumed themselves to be exempt from the judgment of the God of Israel, the God of Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, certainly posed no threat, at least in their mind. The revival of the days of Jonah the prophet had long since passed from their memories. Just a hundred years ago, God had swept across the city in a great revival, more than 120,000 people repenting of their sin and God relenting of judgment. But Assyria had turned to her deeds of violence and persisted in the mistreatment of the people of God. Now judgment would come. In verse 1, the Bible says, one who scatters is coming up against you. God is now actively moving against the city of Nineveh. God is, is the one. One who scatters is coming up against you. Man the fortifications. Watch the road. Brace yourself. Summon all your strength. 
In other words, do all that you can. Utilize all your pre-prepared defenses. Get ready. Implement all of your weapons of war, all of your defensive moves. Make them now. Man the fortification. Break your, brace yourself. Watch the road. Summon all your strength. Do all that you can. As though all that you can is any match whatsoever for the power of God against you in judgment. Verse 2 is the only break from this word of judgment in all of chapter 2. In fact, it's a rare break from the promise of judgment in all of the book of Nahum. The verse reads, For the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob, yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vine branches. Decades before Nahum the prophet assumed his ministry, the Assyrian Empire had swept into the ten northern tribes, the nation of Israel, and carried them away. They ceased to exist as a nation. And it was believed that the very, the very existence of those tribes was in jeopardy. Not only had Assyria come in and conquered those ten northern tribes, conquered the nation of Israel, they had removed many of the citizens of those tribes and placed them in other population groups, removing some of those population groups and transplanting them by force within the boundaries of the former nation of Israel. Their hope was that what they did not or could not kill, they would breed out by mixing and mingling the ethnic groups of that particular region. This was a primary tactic of the Assyrian military. Israel, it seemed, was at best on the cusp of being totally decimated as a nation. But there's a flickering flame of hope for Israel here in the judgment of Assyria. But the Bible says here, the Lord will restore the majesty of Jacob. Yes, the majesty of Israel, though ravagers have ravaged them and ruined their vines. In other words, in spite of great opposition, though it seems as though things are as bad as they could conceivably be, there remains hope for the people of God. The contemporary application of this reality is to note that when it seems as though we are on the brink of devastation, when it seems as though things are as bad as they can conceivably be, there remains hope for the people of God. Verse 3 returns to the terror of judgment. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet. Fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations, and the spears are brandished. These verses have to do with the enemy army that is amassing outside the city of Nineveh. Someone asked after the first service, in fact, I was asked after both services, so I suppose it needs to be noted, it was the Babylonians that ultimately conquered the city of Nineveh and the Assyrian Empire. But because of some unique historical circumstances, there seems to have been something of a mixed gathering of soldiers amassing outside the city of Nineveh. Not only was it the Babylonian Empire that was the primary force that opposed them, some of the earlier nations, or earlier empires, in fact, conquered by the Babylonians, had joined forces with the Babylonian army. This is a force of great power. In fact, the Babylonian army would be the sword of judgment in God's hand against the nation of Judah 
in the decades that were to come. For now, they are amassed outside the city of Nineveh. We've come to a point in time in history no one could have anticipated. Nineveh, for all of its might, could have never envisioned a day when an army would be foolish enough to amass itself outside their city gates, let alone the idea that an army would amass itself posing a real threat outside her city gates. Verse 3 again notes her shields. The shields of his warriors are dyed red. That is to say they are dyed red by the blood of those who have opposed them in the days leading up to their arrival at the doorstep of the great city of Nineveh. The valiant men are dressed in scarlet, the red clothing worn by soldiers within that army amassed outside her walls. The fittings of the chariot flash like fire on the day of its battle preparations and the spears are brandished. Not only is this a vast army outside, not only does the sight of this army strike fear in the hearts of the Assyrians, they are blood red, they are clothed in scarlet and their shields bathed in the blood of the brothers of those inside the city gates. They are well fortified and well equipped for the invasion. The pride of the Assyrian army was this technological advancement known as the chariot. Gave them a capacity for movement within the field of battle. It gave them a source of strength and an, adva- and, and an advantage on the field of battle. But they're matched chariot for chariot now as the Babylonians gather themselves outside the city of Nineveh. Spears brandished and ready for war. The perspective in verse 3 is that of the Assyrians. Looking out from the city of Nineveh as this army begins to gather itself, judgment is on their doorstep. But verse 4 flashes to inside the city. Outside the city, there are chariots, there are officers, there is an army gathered, spears brandished. But inside, it's utter chaos. The invasion is yet to happen, but the fear that has settled into the hearts of those on the inside has created this running to and fro, this mad dash, this chaos at what seems now imminent for them. Verse 4 says, the chariots dash madly through the streets. They rush around in the plazas. They look like torches. They dart back and forth like lightning. Although chariots are the focus of both verse 3 and 4. In verse 3, it's the chariots outside. Here in verse 4, it's the chariots on the inside, dashing madly back and forth. The torches they bear appearing like streaks of lightning. The idea here is is not that they're moving about furiously as a reference to their power, their ferocity, their capacity in battle. The idea here is that the Assyrian army on the inside is moving around so chaotically, trying to position themselves against this invasion, that the torches their chariots bear dash back and forth so that they look like streaks of lightning. A few weeks ago, 4th of July, many of your children, like my children, lit sparklers in the night. and They would run around or spin them around, and it appears as though there's a steady stream of light Running across the lawn in the darkness of the night, it looks like a bolt of lightning. That's what's being described in verse number four. There's chaos on the inside. Verse five reads as though the king of Nineveh has this flash of brilliance. He is awakened from the stupor of his fear at the knowledge that he has officers. 
In fact, he has officers who have demonstrated their wisdom, their wit, their power, their capacity for victory on the field of battle again and again and again. In a flash, he remembers those officers. He gives orders to his officers. But this, too, proves to be a futile attempt to thwart the judgment of God against them. For the Bible says in the next stanza, they stumble as they advance. They race to its wall. The protective shield is set in place. Verse 6 notes, the river gates are open and the palace erodes away. This is kind of a transition point in our passage. There are a few abrupt transitions in the coming verses. Verse 5 speaks of the man-made fortifications for the city of Nineveh. They rush to the wall. The protective shields are set in place. Historically, Nineveh had not one wall, but two. An outer wall, which was fairly impressive, miles long, surrounding the entirety of the city, but not terribly tall. In fact, rather average for its day, 20 or 30 feet. Between the first wall and the second wall was a moat 100 feet wide and 60 feet deep. But the innermost wall was 100 feet tall and wide enough to race three chariots around its top. Now, if you can think about an ancient Near Eastern context, this is just incredible. Not only does no one want to mess with the city of Nineveh and risk rousing the fierceness of the Assyrian army. If you ever dreamed of doing such a thing, there are two walls, a moat, and by the way, one of those walls is a hundred feet tall and three chariots deep. The likelihood of penetrating the man-made defenses of this city are small, to say the least. Verse 6 notes, River gates are opened, and the palace erodes. Not only did Nineveh have the benefit of these man-made fortifications, they also had the natural benefits of living in, in basically at basically the crossroads of two great rivers, the Tigris and Euphrates River. Ancient Nineveh is in the northern part of modern-day Iraq, near the city of Mosul, which you became somewhat familiar with in all likelihood in recent wars with Iraq. The nightly news often reported updates as to the battle in and around Mosul. That's in the general territory of the city of Nineveh, the ancient city of Nineveh. You have man-made fortifications, which are just incredible for their, for their day. And then you have the natural protection afforded by the Tigris and Euphrates River. They are situated in the fork of those two rivers. An invading army would at best be slowed down long enough that the city of Nineveh could prepare itself well for any potential invasion. But the note in verse 6 is that the river gates have opened what seemed to be these natural and impenetrable sources of fortification had now opened wide to an invading army. I mentioned in the introduction there are some literary features here that function like the horror movies you might have watched as a young person. This is the point in time in the film when the hapless soon-to-be victim realizes that their attacker is no longer outside the house, they're actually on the inside. 
The movement of our passage geographically is from outside the city, even as distant as outside the forks of the Tigris and Euphrates River, now to the very heart of the city, so much so that verse 6 describes the scenario in which the palace itself at the heart of the city erodes away. Again, this is something the Assyrians could have never envisioned. They believed themselves to be so well protected to be so well guarded, nothing can come against us. And there are those of you, even in this congregation, who have convinced yourself to be so well protected, to have positioned yourself so beautifully as to guard against any potential downfall, any potential of judgment. You have accepted yourself or exempted yourself from the likelihood that any judgment whatsoever could come against you. Trust me, one day in spite of all of your fortifications, natural and man-made, it will catch up with you. God will not be mocked. The judge of heaven and earth will always do what is right, even in the service of justice. Verse 7 is another transition. Away from the broad general descriptions of judgment against the city as one or the city as a unit, to the impact that this move of God's judgment has on the individual citizens of that city. Beauty is stripped. She's carried away. Her ladies in waiting moan like the sound of doves and beat their breast. Nineveh has been like a pool of water from her first day, but they are fleeing. Stop, stop, they cry, but no one turns back. Everyone runs their own way. Nineveh's described here as a pool of water from her first day. We might add a cool, calm oasis in the midst of a deserted and impoverished ancient Near Eastern landscape. Nineveh had been that calm, cool pool, that oasis, that source of prosperity and blessedness situated there in the ancient East. If you lived in the general area... You had any hopes of fame or fortune, prosperity beyond what you were born into, Nineveh was to be a likely destination. It might be your life's ambition to migrate to that city. The pool that was Nineveh had been comprised of droplets of individual people from every neighboring nation, a remarkably diverse place. And now they scatter in an instant. I know that there can be a sort of political element to this kind of discussion, but often as I watch the news unfold with regards to our border and border security, in spite of my frustrations and the head scratching that often ensues for me at observing policy and the decisions that are made there, I'm always in the end, regardless of my frustrations, proud. Glad to live in a country that might require walls for keeping people out, but doesn't necessarily need walls for keeping people in. Walls that were once constructed around the city of Nineveh to protect them from invasion now are barely a hurdle to those who are evacuating the city as the judgment of God falls with remarkable force. They cry, stop! Stop, and no one turns back. Verse 9, the Bible says, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There's no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. 
There's some irony here in verse 9. It might be easily missed, but it's heavy. In fact, it's heavy in verses 9 through 13. If you weren't with us last week, we turned back in our discussion of Nahum chapter 1 to 2 Kings 18 and 19. Assyria was threatening to invade in the decades leading up to Nahum's prophecy. And they send a messenger to the king of Judah, Hezekiah, and they warn him, if you don't surrender, dreadful things are going to happen. And the same ambassador goes to the people of Jerusalem. And he positions himself in the city. And this is his message. Do not trust your God to defend you against the Assyrian army. And do not trust King Hezekiah to defend you either. Now Hezekiah had made the unfortunate decision that he would buy the protection of the Assyrian Empire. He paid them 11 tons of silver. It even stripped the gold from the temple itself and paid it into the treasury of the Assyrian king. The problem with extortion, the problem with blackmail is that you have no recourse when the one who's doing the extorting, the one who's doing the blackmailing determines that he will not honor your agreement. And that's exactly what the king of Assyria did. Hezekiah was left on an island with no support. Now his people being taunted and harassed by this ambassador from Assyria. Here in verse number 9, the statement is made, plunder the silver, plunder the gold. There is no end to the treasure and abundance of every precious thing. Carried away as plunder from the city of Nineveh was the very treasure paid from the treasury of the temple of our Lord. Assyria is experiencing in a very personal way what it looks like to gain the world and lose your soul. They had prospered by their sin. Their violence had served them well. Their oppression of the people of God had fattened their pockets and increased their coffers. They had indeed gained the world. But in one fail swoop of judgment, they would lose their soul. Verse 10 reads, desolation, decimation, devastation. Hearts melt, knees tremble, loins shake, every face grows pale. Decimation, devastation, and desolation. Remember, no Ninevite could have ever anticipated this kind of outcome for themselves. Surely this could never happen to us. They must have said among themselves time and time and time again. And yet, here they are. The Bible describes the response of the individual citizens of the city. Hearts melt, knees tremble, loins shake, every face grows pale. We're dealing here with the earthly dimension of judgment. How it is or what it looks like when God moves here on earth in an act of judgment. And for the people of Nineveh, it's too late. Their only response is that their hearts would melt and that their knees would tremble and that their loins would shake and that every face would grow pale. But there's no recourse. There's no response that can alleviate the weight of God's judgment against them in this moment. It is just too late. There's a spiritual dimension of judgment. And there's coming a day when it will then be too late. In the spiritual dimension of judgment. When every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord. There will be but that our knees would melt. 
and our loins would shake and our knees would tremble and our faces grow pale at the lordship of Jesus, except you run to Christ in this life, you will experience in the spiritual dimension what it's like to wait too late for repentance. Both in the earthly and spiritual dimension, there comes a moment in time when it's past time. The window of opportunity for repentance on the part of the people of Assyria had closed. As I like to say, like to point out, the promise of salvation is free, but it's a one-day guarantee only. Today, the Bible says, is the day of salvation. The time is coming when your window of opportunity for repentance will have closed and it will be forever too late. No amount of heart melting, no amount of knee trembling, no amount of loin shaking, no facial response, no drooping countenance can undo the outcome we have yielded if we resist the call of God on our life and refuse to repent of our sin. Syria is experiencing what it looks like to gain the world and lose their soul. It is a remarkable privilege to be a pastor. There are far more wonderful things about being a pastor than there are bad things. But one of the bad things is that you're often with people in the worst moments of their life. It's about a 50-50 split. About half of the time, those worst moments come about by circumstances that are entirely beyond the control of those who have befallen this particular situation. And about half the time, this worst case scenario has resulted from a series of misguided and ungodly decisions. And about half of those times, you find yourself sitting across from those who continue to deceive themselves into believing that somehow, some way, they have been justified in the things that they've done. Or that somehow, some way, in spite of what they've done, they're undeserving of the outcome that's brought about in their experience. I, 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 want you to, I want you all to come in real close and listen really carefully here. If you are trifling with sin, convincing yourself somehow, some way, you're going to shortcut the judgment of God in your life, you are fooling yourself. You are destroying yourself, you are destroying your health, you are destroying your family, you are marking your children, you are setting ablaze a wildfire you cannot contain nor fathom the dreadful consequences it will bring into your experience. Repent today before it is forever too late. I said when we were beginning, sort of in jest, there are just so many ways you can say if you don't do right, God will get you. But it occurs to me that God says this message, in essence, redundantly in the Bible. Again and again. And I've always said, in some, some measure of laughter, preaching the prophets is hard. Because again, there are just so many ways you can say, if you don't do right, God will kill you. Or you have not done right, and now God is going to kill you. That is essentially the message of the prophet. To somebody, somewhere, you have not done right, and now God is going to get you or actively kill you. It is going to result in disaster for you. Because 
I think we need to hear it again and again and again. Because like Assyrians, we convince ourselves we are the exception. We are exempted from this standard. Listen, you are no exception and you are not exempted from the holy standard of God in judgment. Verse 11, Nineveh is referred to as a lion. Where is the lion's lair? The feeding ground of the young lions where the lion and lion is proud and the lion's cub with nothing to frighten them away. The lion mauled whatever its cub needed and strangled prey for its lioness. It filled up its dens with the kill and its lair with mauled prey. Where is the lion's lair? I'm, I'm no lion hunter, but I've watched enough National Geographic to know that even when the lion leaves the lion's den, it's still readily recognizable. Tucked away, filled with the bones and the carcasses of prey from past days, Nineveh, under the judgment of God, has become altogether unrecognizable. Every little boy, in fact, maybe every child has played the lion, wanted to be the lion, acted like a lion. As, as a boy, and for that matter, as an adult man, there's a certain fascination with the lion for its power, for its strength. If, if, if there were a single animal in all the world that I could go hunt just one time in my life, it would be the lion, the king of the jungle. There's just a certain uh, there's something majestic about this animal and all of its power. But for all of its beauty, the lion is driven by a single impulse. The impulse to self-satisfy. The lion is a fitting metaphor for the people of Nineveh, the empire of Assyria, not only for their strength and their majestic nature, but by the fact that they are driven by this singular impulse to satisfy themselves at all costs. Such an impulse always comes with consequences. You live like a lion and you will ultimately likewise die like a lion. Verse 13, God warns, I'm against you. And this is emphasized by the fact that Nahum notes here, under the inspiration of the Spirit, this is the declaration of the Lord of hosts. I will make your chariots go up in smoke, and the sword will devour your young lions. I will cut off your prey from the earth, and the sound of your messengers will never be heard again. Your implements of war are no match for the power of God. The chariot had been the pride of the Assyrian army, but God says, I will make them go up in smoke. Their youthful, strong, well-trained warriors had likewise been the pride of the empire. But the Bible says the sword would devour their young lions, their young warriors. God goes on to promise, I'll cut off your prey from the earth. What does not fall in the devastation of war will fall by starvation in the aftermath of that war's devastation. The sound of your messengers will never be heard again. If you go back in your mind to 2 Kings 18 and 19, which we considered together last week, that mysterious figure referred to there as the Rabshakeh, that ambassador from Assyria, that prince of princes, came to taunt the citizens of Jerusalem, don't trust your God and don't trust your king. 
One wonders if that wasn't commonly practiced by the Assyrians, if they didn't send forth an ambassador to strike fear and discontent in the hearts of every city's subjects in the hopes that they would surrender themselves without the Assyrians ever being required to raise a sword at all. This chapter closes with a note for the people of God that they will never again, at least by an Assyrian source, be taunted, harassed, challenged for their faith in God or their subjection to the king God had appointed as earthly Lord over them. The sound of messengers, your messengers, will never be heard again. Not only is the book of Nahum about justice, it has a lot to say about authority. Who's in charge? Just in case you've missed it, God is in charge. It's interesting to me sort of observing everyday history, watching the news cycle, even sharing in conversation with with others from within our day, this generation, there, there is a real interest. We noted this in earlier weeks with justice, with the service of justice. That seems to be the mantra of our day. And perhaps there's an element of the image of God in us that's given rise to that yearning that justice be served in some way. Often when justice feels as though it is beyond our reach, we can tend to satisfy our want with justice with just a dose of authority. If we can't get justice, if that's beyond our grasp, maybe we can just get some authority. We can get some power. We can be in charge of something. Often those who feel the most powerless are crying the loudest for justice. And often those who feel powerless in their efforts to grab for justice come up with a measure of authority, and this seems to satisfy in some way. It gives an outlet for vengeance, for retribution, for taking the circumstances of one's own life under their own control. But I would have you to note that that authority is fleeting. That authority ultimately belongs to God, the King of all kings and the Lord of all lords. And though justice may feel beyond our grasp in the here and now, there is coming a day when justice is served with absolute precision, when he makes it all right at long last. This passage is ominous in its tone. Judgment is coming against the sin of this world. And the only safe place is in Jesus Christ. I've shared enough about who I am for those of you who've been around know I had a little bit of a shaky upbringing. Shaky may be kind, shady may be more appropriate. My kids are coming up in a much different way than I did. The environment that they experience on an everyday basis is radically different from what I experienced at certain points along the way in my upbringing, especially in those preteen and, and teen years. But from time to time, because of obligations or commitments, because of family gatherings or funerals or weddings or whatever the case would, have, would be along the way, my kids have experienced a touch of the environment that I grew up in. And kids sense things, right? They, they get it. There's an, there's an air of danger in the air. Something about that setting feels, 
to be beyond their control. It's that sense you get when you feel threatened, when you're in an unfamiliar environment, when you're in the wrong part of town late at night and you don't know where you're going, you're lost, you're misdirected, and you can just sense anxiety growing, bubbling up in you, that there's, there's something about this situation that's, that's fearful, that's creating in me a certain nervousness, a certain anxiety. And I could see that look in the faces of my, my boys. Their instinct in that kind of environment, having sensed that there's potential for danger in the air, would, would be to draw near their father. So close at times, it could be an aggravation. You couldn't step without stumbling over them. And I could see the fear in their face. And you would try to reassure them in the moment that I would protect them. And I, I would. I'd kill anybody that messed with my children. I would. I believe God has called us as fathers to protect and provide for our wife and the children he's given under our care. I would protect them at all costs, at life and limb. They would pull close. Sensing this air of danger, the potential for some threat. When you and I, as the people of God, read passages like Nahum chapter 2, that's the instinct these verses ought to create or set in motion for us. Sensing the threat of real danger in the air. We are to draw near the Father who has promised to provide and protect for his children till, till the end. I will never leave you nor forsake you. Lo, I am with you always, even to the end of the age. This is the promise of our Father. So we draw near to him and we find a safe place even against the day of judgment, we hide ourselves in the cleft of the rock, the rock, our Savior, Jesus Christ, a place of refuge, a place of safety, a stronghold against the day of judgment. Our impulse, our instinct when we read passages like this is to run to Jesus. And for those of you who don't know him, the call of this passage is that you cease in fooling yourself into believing that somehow, some way, you're going to be let off the hook for your sin. We have been reminded along the way in Nahum of the seriousness of sin in the eyes of our God. Nahum is an invitation that we would make haste to repent of our sin before our window of opportunity for escaping the judgment that is to come is closed forever. Come to Jesus. Now against the dark backdrop of Nahum and this conversation of God's judgment stands in stark contrast the beauty of God's grace as exhibited in the message of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Against that backdrop, God sends his only son Jesus into this world. Jesus comes and fulfills the righteous requirement of the law. That's a biblical way of saying all of the stuff that you should have done, Jesus has done in perfection. And in spite of his sinlessness, without a blot or a blemish on his name, Jesus goes to Calvary's cross to take this kind of wrath the bow of God's wrath bent against you, 
Jesus goes to the cross to take the arrows in his hands and in his side. Jesus drinks the bitter cup of God's judgment against you and against me for the sins that you have done and the sins that you will do. And for some of you, the sins you commit at this very moment, Jesus bleeds and dies. They bury his body outside the city. Three days cold and dead, the lifeless body of our Savior Jesus began to breathe again. The heart and the chest of the God-man began to thump again. And the once congealed blood in the arteries and veins of our Savior began to flow again. And in great victory, the stone was rolled away. And Jesus walks forth triumphantly that we might trust and believe in him, repenting of our sin and knowing salvation eternally. Not because of what we have done, but because of what he did at Calvary's cross. This is the beauty and the power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not that God has grown unconcerned with sin. Never, no, never does a holy God dismiss himself from the judgment of sin. But for those who would believe on Jesus, it's a judgment that's born on the back of Jesus Christ. Do you know him? Do you love him? Do you cherish him? Do you treasure him? Would you give it all away? Be left with only Jesus. And truly be able to say, he's enough. Let's go to him in prayer. Father, thank you for your word and for its truth. Lord, a hard word. God, I pray that you would nourish the souls of the saints at the reading and the preaching of your word. You would call sinners to repentance. That you would break our hearts over the games we play with sin. That you'd give us eyes to see the foolishness of our ways. Reveal to us, Lord, even our secret sin. Our tendency is to make light of the presence of sin in our life over the course of time. It's been around so long. It's just a part of who we are and what we do. Break our heart over those very sins. God, for those who don't know you, grant them the gift of faith. Give them eyes to see the beauty of our King Jesus. Lord, would you, as the good shepherd, whisper the names of those, Lord, those you'd save. May they, as your sheep, hear and recognize your voice. Stir our hearts to an appropriate response to the reading and the preaching of your word. In Jesus' name, amen.